I couldn't help notice this week as I am preparing the topic and studying the topic of light, I realized the lack of it. Just throughout this week, mid midweek, we, we didn't get much sun, did we? And then this type of weather, it's really doing my mood in. Because like my, my wife every day is saying, oh, I hate this weather, I hate this weather. There's something about sunlight that makes us happier, doesn't it? And when it's gloomy like this, our mood feels gloomy and it just feels sad. And, but, you know, I'm glad I have an Oikos church like this because the moment I came back from a holiday, I, I entered this place, I, I felt warmth from everyone here. But again, light, there's something about light that, that it creates a joy. Also, who's here afraid of the dark or used to be afraid of the dark? Okay, I, I, be honest. <laughs> So as a little kid growing up, I was terrified with dark because I was a kid with a vivid imagination. I let it get the best of me. There were times in my bedroom, I thought I'm seeing the boogeyman or the ghost or, or, or something. And there I'm shivering in my bed and just hoping that it's Casper, the friendly ghost. And I'm yelling, mom, mom, meatloaf. And then she comes on and she turns on the light. And when the light comes on, instantly the fear is banished, is it not? There's something about light that banishes and drives out fear. It brings joy, it drives out fear, and light. I learned an important lesson about light when I went to one camp that I went during my, my teen years. Now, I've gone to so many camps in my life that I've lost count of how many camps that I've been to. And you got one coming up and this one is going to be very rememberable. So make sure you sign up for this camp. Yeah. This is what you call advertisement. <laughs> but this camp was run by an Australian group. <laughs> and there's something about Aussies that as a Vietnamese, I didn't understand. What Aussies like to do is they like to go bushwalking. And I'm like, what? Why walk in a bush? Like, you're not hunting. You're not trying to find anything. You're just walking in the bush. Walk in the park. Walk in the pavement. Walk anywhere else. Why walk in the bush? So what happened was there was around 30 of us spontaneously at the twilight of night, we decided to go bushwalking. Now, that was the, the Aussie's idea and it was, was beyond me. And so I followed along. And, and this was over in Queensland and this camp was based in, in the terrain. It wasn't normal. It was a mix between farmland and a forest and it was filled and it was infested with cacti, cactus everywhere. And it was and it was the type of cactus that if you step on any of its roots with vengeance and wrath, it will projectile its limbs and it will stick onto your leg and will impale you. And then we will use these sticks to, to try to flick it out of our legs and then it will get onto our bodies. Of course, we'll laugh. But the, we didn't laugh for long because the injuries continue to increase. Why? Because it was dark. Why? Because out of the 30 of us, only five of us had flashlights. And so we were trying to wander around bushwalking in the dark, filled with natural landmines and everyone screaming, medic, medic. And after only 15 minutes, we decided to go back. 
And so what happened was we boys learned a valuable lesson about light that night. That light guides. Because without those five little flashlights, a lot of us wouldn't have make, made it back at all. And of course, the other lesson we learned is don't bushwalk at night. Light helps us see. C.S. Law says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not because that I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And today, as Phil has read the Bible reading, which our passage is based on today, which is John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20. So if you have your Bibles with you, leave it there. It's a claim that Jesus makes. He says that I am the light of the world. And I'm going to split my sermon into three points today. So first, the context of the incident, the claim of his identity, and the core of his invitation. The context of the incident, the claim of his identity, and the core of his invitation. But before we dig into the passage, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you send your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word for us and to help us see whom Jesus really is. And in his name we pray. Amen. So first off, the context of the incident. So when Jesus says in verse 12, I am the light of the world, so even to try to understand this statement, you've got to look at the context because it's important to know the context of how this incident and how this statement was made. I am the light of the world. And really John chapter 8 is a continuation of John chapter 7. It would do you a disservice if you don't go home and read John chapter 7 yourself. And I believe that it's also a part of the camp theme John chapter 7, so it will get you interested in the camp. Again, sneaky advertisement right there. It's a continuation on of John chapter 7. And we see that this takes place, when Jesus says this statement, it takes place at a festival or the Feast of the Tabernacle. And you may be here today and you're like, Dexter, what is the Feast of the Tabernacle? I'll tell you what it is. And I'll tell you what this celebration entails. To bring you up to speed, what was going downtown in our hometown, Jerusalem. The Feast of the Tabernacle was one of the three big feasts of the Jewish celebration. It usually happens around the eighth month of their calendar. With singing, dancing, people lighting up lights, people pigging out on food. It sounds like our Christmas, but this celebration happens for eight days straight. And really at the heartbeat of this celebration was a festival to remember how God had provided for them, how God has guided them during their, t- during their time of wandering in the wilderness, back in the Exodus time. It was to re- commemorate and to remember and give thanks to God. And they would have these fun traditions that they would uphold. So during the wilderness, they remember that their ancestors, their ancestors they, had these, they lived in these makeshift tents. And so the people in Jerusalem, they would build these little tents on top of their roofs. And so the whole family would go camping for eight days. 
Now, if you were a kid, you would have so much fun. And as you look down on your roof, you will see people with these torchlights in huge lines singing and, and meandering in this huge Congo line, just walking around and singing and dancing around the city. What a time to be alive. The city is packed to the brim. It's, it's jolly. It's joyful. And every morning, the priest will go to the pool of Shalom, scoop some water out of it, and they will walk up towards the temple and they will pour this water out on the altar. Why? It's to remember that during the time when the people, the Israelites were thirsty, God provided water. Remember that story where Moses hit this rock and, and water came out? It was to remember that God provided us water. And what's cool in John chapter 7 is Jesus also comes up to that temple, to that very place. And he says this, drink of me and you'll never be thirsty again. Talk about a sermon prop analogy. He's making sure that the people don't miss the point on who he is. And so he's using his whole background. He's using it as an imagery, as a metaphor to point out who he is. You know what? I'm the same God that provided water for you. All these rituals, all these festivals, all these customs and traditions, they all point to me. And so here in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus is doing the exact same thing. He's using his whole background, the whole stage to declare the truth on who he is. So where is Jesus standing at this moment? He's standing at the temple and during the festival, the Jewish people will have these four huge candle candles, these four huge pillars that looks like huge lampposts that is 25 meters high. And on top of these four pillars would, have, would contain a huge bowl full of oil, around 65 liters. And the wick for that candle would be the very robe of the priest. And so every night when it gets dark, the people will come up and they will light these four candles. And what happens is historians will tell you it will light up and illuminate the whole city of Jerusalem, where it made night seem like day. Wherever you are in Jerusalem, you could see those four candles shining brightly. And again, that was to remember, for them to commemorate how God guided them through a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so when God, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it's the ninth day. It's the ninth day. The festival, the crazy festival has just finished. Jesus as is at the temple courts. Behind him are four huge pillars. The candles are still there, but it's out. The fire's out. And he says, I am the light of the world. He's saying this as the people gathered towards him. He's looking down at a sea of people. And when he said that, there was no cheering. There was no clapping. There was no, yay. Yeah, you, you go, Jesus. No, no, there was none of that. The crowd would have been silent. You would have heard pin drops. You would have heard people coughing. You would, would hear people grasping. <gasps> oh, no, he didn't. Why? Because what Jesus have just said and declared 
seems audacious, it seems provocative, and it almost seems blasphemous. Which brings me to my second point, the claim of his identity. So what Jesus is pretty much saying when he says, I am the light of the world, he's pretty much saying, you know that cloud? Do you know that pillar that guided you? That was me. You know, all this setup, all these candles, all these rituals, all these traditions and customs, it was about me. I am, ego, emi, I am God. And I will be the one to lead you. And I will be the one who will bring and give you life. I am God. Look no further. Look to me. That's what he's saying. And at this verse 13, the Pharisees are enraged. And they challenge him. And they say, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Valid. Which Jesus replies, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. Because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. You don't know where I came from and you don't know where I'm going. What's happening here is the Jewish leaders, they're so irritated and they, they're pretty much yelling out, you liar. Why are they saying this? Because Jesus' very claim is a threat to their very existence. These moral elites, you liar. But then Jesus kind of rebuttals, how would you know I'm lying? How would you know I'm lying? And then he says, I know where I came from. And I know where I'm going. Do you? Yeah, I don't think so. I know where I came from. So where did Jesus come from? So if you read... In John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, John the author says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing has been made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That's that light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. So really what that passage means there was Jesus, he was there in the beginning. He was God. But this God, he stepped down in human flesh as a baby and he, he, Jesus knew. He knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. He knew that he was going to go to the cross. That darkness tried to overcome it, but it could not. And Jesus knew that, yes, he would die on the cross, but three days later, he will raise again and he will sit at the right hand of God. And where would he be after that? Revelations 21. It says this, At the end of time, there is no need for the sun or moon to shine because God gives it its light and the lamb will be its lamp. The nation will walk by its light, by Jesus's light. He knows where he comes from. And he knows where he's going. In other words, Jesus is claiming again, I am God. What type of God is he? And he says this, you judge by human standards, but I pass judgment on no one. Now verse 15, what does that line mean? Again, Oikos Yet, his homework, go home and read John chapter 8 verses 1 to 11, because really it's connected. So this is a story about a woman 
caught in the act of adultery. It's funny because only she gets brought to Jesus instead of the male partner because it takes two to tango. It kind of baffles my mind. And they only bring her along. They should have executed her there and then, no, but they have brought her to trap and trap Jesus. And so they bring this lady caught in the act of adultery to Jesus drag her, and I can imagine dragging her by the hair or, or whatever. She's roughed up and she, they bring her in front of Jesus. She's crying and she's in tears. And they ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? Because they know that by law, this woman should have been executed by stoning. And so really they're giving Jesus only two options, but it's a lose-lose type of situation. Because if Jesus says, no, don't stone her, what they would say about Jesus is, oh, look, Jesus is not following the law. He's not a friend of Moses. But if Jesus says, okay, do stone her, then he really isn't that merciful like he claims to be. And it seems like they finally got Jesus. They finally put him in a rock in a hard place. But you know what Jesus does? He says this. For those of you who think they have no sin, cast the first stone. And he squats down. You know the story. He squats down and he starts writing on the ground. We don't know what he's, he's written. But I can imagine the lady. She's there. She's crying. She's holding her head. She's trying to protect her head. Waiting for those rocks to hit her. But she starts hearing some noises, thump, thump, as people are dropping their rocks. And the Bible says that the elders, they left first, and then the youngest also left. And then Jesus asked the woman, where's your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She says, no, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. You see, during her darkest moments when she thought she was doomed, she thought she was done, Jesus shows up and illuminates her darkness. And he also shows her a new way of life. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus does not pass judgment on no one. Again, this echoes John 3 verse 17. For God did not send his son, which is Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And notice how in verse 12, when Jesus says, I am the light. He doesn't say just for the Jews, just for the city of Jerusalem. No, no. He says, I am the light of the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every race, every nation, every location, I am its light. So what does this claim that Jesus makes mean to us today? I don't know, for those of you who have come here today and you are in deep waters, you are facing troubles, you're facing trials, financial difficulties, relationship breakdown, I don't know. No matter how dark your situation is, no matter how challenging your circumstances is, don't look for the light at the end of the tunnel. No, no, I'm telling you to look at Jesus because let him be your light. You search for him. 
Maybe you're here today and you are feeling lost. You are feeling confused. You are at crossroads in your life or, or you don't even know what's happening around the corner. Give Jesus a try. Let him be the light to guide you. Because why? He knows where he is going. He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. And if you're with him, I doubt that you'll be lost. Or maybe you're in a dark place because your sin put you there. It was your fault. Like this woman who was caught in adultery, thought she was doomed. But I have good news for you. There is a Messiah that came to her rescue. There is a Savior that comes to save and not to condemn. So you know what? Instead of feeling ashamed, instead of listening to the enemy's lies, feeling that, oh, I can't come to God now because I'm a mess. No, 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 no. Come to Jesus. Do you not see the love that's in his eyes? He's not the type of Savior that will throw a stone at you. He's the type of Savior that rolls the stone away. He's this type of Savior that doesn't, doesn't get rid of your sin by just ignoring it. No, no. He's the type of Savior that died on your behalf. So the death that this lady deserved, Jesus took it upon the cross. Why? So we could come to the Father. Let Jesus be the light that guides you to the Father. And if you really call yourself his children, his people, remember where Jesus is standing at the moment. He's standing at the temple courts and behind him are four huge pillars that represent the flame that once guided the Israelites. And if you know the Exodus story well, wherever the flame went, the people went. Wherever the flame stopped, the people stopped. Let Jesus be your guide. And maybe for some of you, it's time to give up that control of direction in your life and be where God is. And this leads me to my last point. The core of his invitation. The core of his invitation. So essentially what happens in verse 16 to verse 20 is pretty much the Jesus says to his opposition is, you don't know me or my father. In other words, you really don't know God. Why? Because you don't have a relationship with me. And so you know what Jesus is basically doing in this passage? He's inviting and he's calling those who have heard this to enter into a relationship with him. Now, I'm not making this up. Again, look at verse 12. Again, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But he continues, whoever, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So whoever heard it back then and whoever hears it now. This is the core. And there's two verbs in this core. The first is follow me. Follow me. Me. He's calling us like how he called his disciples, how he called his apostles. Follow me. In the Greek, this is a continuous verb. 
It's not, it's not like, oh, I used to follow Christ. I used to go to church when I was younger. No, no, it's not like that. It's a continuous following. And he asks us to follow him continuously. And the second verb in there is walk, walk. So in other words, you can read this verse as walk with me. Jesus inviting you to walk with him. Now, back in Genesis, before Adam and Eve fell, they were walking with God in the cool of the garden. It says Enoch walked with God and God took him away. And then it says Noah walked with God and Abraham walked with God. Various characters in the Bible walked with God. Now, what essentially does walking with God mean? It means to enter into a fellowship with him and a relationship with him. And John, the author, is a bit more clear when he writes the letter of John. In 1 John 5, verse 5 to 7, it says this, This is the message we have heard from him to proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him, but walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and in Christ. Here, what Jesus is really doing, his call, his invitation is calling you into a relationship with him. Follow me. Walk with me because I am the light of the world. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And you're probably thinking, okay, Dexter, it's, it's cool how you, you talk about the concept of Jesus and life, but, but how do I become a Christian? Now, there was this old famous preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. During his earlier years, he was an atheist. He, he goes to church once in a while, but he doesn't go to church that much. But during in London, there was this heavy, heavy snowstorm and the weather was so bad. And to hide away from the weather, he enters this small church. And as he walks in those doors, he realized there's only one other person sitting in the pews. And so he takes his seat and the preacher comes up to preach. And this preacher, he wasn't even the minister. He wasn't even a pastor, but he was only a stand-in elder because the pastor couldn't make it because of the bad snowstorm. And so this elder that doesn't preach that much, he opens up the word of God and he reads this text from Isaiah. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Look to me and be saved all the ends of any, just because he's not an experienced preacher, he just continues to repeat this line for like 15 minutes. And then he closes the Bible in and he looks down at the congregation and he points towards one of them. What are the chances? It was, it was only two people. And he points to Charles Spurgeon. And he says, don't you see? Just look to Jesus. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. You just need to look at Him and believe what He has done for you. There's nothing that you could do. And he continues, young man, I see that you are miserable. And you're going to continue to be miserable until you obey my text. And Charles Spurgeon was actually struggling for years on how do I get this spiritual reality? 
He's tried everything. He's tried moralism. He's tried mysticism. He, he fasted and he prayed to get the spiritual experience. But when he heard this elder say to him, obey my texts, it finally dawned on him. Jesus Christ is the light. The only way I could be saved is if I look towards Jesus. There is nothing that I can do but to accept the work that He has done for me. Again, for those of you who are not Christians here, are you feeling you don't know which direction you are heading towards in life? You feel lost. You feel confused. You've chased after so many things. You've tried so many things. Sex, drugs, alcohol, money, career, moralism, good works. I promise you, you will continue to be miserable, admit it or not, until you come to Jesus. For the Christians, for the saints, here's something extra. Know that you aren't just called to follow and walk with the light. You're also called to be a light. It tells us elsewhere in Matthew 5 to his disciples, which is us, to be salt and light of the world. Now to be light is not saying, oh, okay, you, you know, you be a God like Jesus. Is. No, no, no. It's more of you being reflective of his light. So for an example to help you to understand this is be like a glowing star. You, you guys slept with that before? Anybody seen those glowing, glow-in-the-dark stars before? I remember coming to my friend's house, sleeping over his house. As the lights were turned off, the stars on his ceiling, it was green and on the walls was green. It was one of the most amazing sights I've seen because I don't go out that much and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I was like, oh, look at all these glowing stars. But then after a while, these stars start to dim down and they lose its light. And I didn't know why until I'm a bit older. Because these glowing stars, they don't produce their own light. Only when they bathe in light, only when they absorb a source of light, that only then can they produce light. And isn't this how us Christians work? You'll never be a light unless you know the true source of light, that you walk with that light, and that you follow that light. So Icos Church, you are called to be a light that points to Jesus Christ in times such as these. And I'll end off with a saying that my Bible college lecturer said to me that I would never forget. Don't blame that the world is a dark place. Go and light a candle. God bless you, church.